0: Tired of blogs? (laughs) Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. the galactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey (aka the left bank of New York City), it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings! It's Friday, the 18th of November. I'm Dennis Johnson, and on today's show we'll be speaking with Hillel Itali, the Associated Press Wire Service's book reporter. We'll be talking about the National Book Awards, which he covered. We'll also be reading from your letters to the editor, but first, here's some news from the book world. Well, as I indicated, the book world is abuzz with news of literary awards. That's right. The National Book Council Literary Prizes of Malta have announced who's in contention for that award. They're doing something different in Malta this year. They're not just telling you who the finalists are. They're telling you every book that's in contention. As Michael Ortefer points out on the great Literary literarysaloon.com, you can go to com and look up All 77 books in contention. Meanwhile, in New York City on Wednesday night, there was uh, another book award ceremony. The National Book Awards are handed out. Joan Didion won the Best Nonfiction for her, The Year of Magical Thinking, her memoir about the death of her husband, author John Gregory Dunn. Didion told the crowd in her acceptance speech, There's hardly anything I can say about this except thank you. William T. Volman surprised everybody who thought that E.L. Doctro was going to win by winning the Fiction Prize for his Europe Central, a grim 800-page novel about World War II. I thought I would lose, so I didn't prepare a speech, said Volman from the podium. He did say of the book, however, that he was happy it's over because, quote, I don't have to think about that stuff anymore. Other winners included W.S. Merwin for Poetry for his book, Migration, and Jean Birdsall won the Children's Book Award for her, The Penderwicks. Each winner received $10,000, and honorary medals were also handed out to Norman Mailer and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. We'll have more on that later in the program when we talk to Hillel Itali. Bob Woodward remained in the news a day after admitting that he'd had information on the Valerie Plain leak case, but kept it to himself and not told the special federal prosecutor because he was working on a book and he didn't want to be interrupted by having to, you know, testify. Well, as Wonkette reports on her website, Wonkette.com, quote, bloggers are beside themselves over Bob Woodward's revelation that he was told by a senior administration official who Valerie Plame was nearly a month before Bob Novak first identified her in his column. There are many theories, she says, as to why Woodward would not come forth with this information at this time. She quotes blogger Kevin Drum theorizing that the blockbuster article came out only because the senior administration official had tipped his hand to Patrick Fitzgerald. Wonkett has another theory. She says, quote, Bob Woodward had not been on television in the last week or so. But it wasn't only bloggers who were tearing into Woodward. At his own newspaper, one of his colleagues wrote an editorial on why he should not be fired now. You can read that one on Romanesco and all other media sites. That was a hot one. Meanwhile, uh, in Woodward's statement, as many reporters noted today, he said, I told Walter Pincus about it, a reporter at The Post, without naming my source, that I understood Wilson's wife worked at the CIA as a WMD analyst. Said Pincus, are you kidding? I certainly would have remembered that. Other journalists were chiming in, that's journalists from outside the Post, such as Eric Bollert at Rolling Stone, a contributing editor there, he wrote, it really looks bad. Bollert, the author of a forthcoming book on the administration and the press, said, quote, it looks like what people have been saying about Bob Woodward for the past five years, that he's been a stenographer for the Bush White House. Meanwhile, it wasn't just journalists. It was also journalism professors, such as NYU Journalism Prof. Jay Rosen, who said Bob Woodward has gone wholly into access journalism. From the American Journalism Review, Rem Reader said that Woodward's disclosure was stunning. He said, it seems awfully reminiscent of what we criticized Judith Miller for. Meanwhile, tons of reporters are pointing out that Woodward has been going on television for two years criticizing uh, special prosecutor Fitzgerald, calling him disgraceful and a junkyard dog without, as an AP report notes, without ever once divulging that he was not just an observer of the CIA leak case himself, but a recipient, perhaps the first, of the actual leak. As Arianna Huffington put it on her website, the Huffington Post, hear that hissing noise? That's the sound of the air being let out of Bob Woodward's reputation. Meanwhile, according to an Associated Press Wire report, a bipartisan group of senators told congressional leaders Thursday that they will try to block reauthorization of the Patriot Act to protest the elimination of Senate-pushed protections against, quote, unnecessary and intrusive government surveillance. You may recall that the Patriot Act has a provision allowing the government to secretly monitor your purchases at bookstores and what you're doing at the public libraries. It also prevents those libraries and bookstores from telling you that you're under surveillance. But now this bipartisan group of senators, which includes GOP Senators Larry Craig, Johnson, Sununu, and Lisa Murkowski, as well as Democratic Senators Dick Durbin, Russ Feingold, and Ken Sal- Salazar, have said in the letter, a letter that, quote, if further changes are not made, we will work to stop this bill from becoming law. Meanwhile, Congress is facing two deadlines. Lawmakers want to leave before the end of the week for Thanksgiving, according to uh, an Associated Press Wire story by Jesse Holland, and more than a dozen provisions of the Patriot Act are going to expire at the end of the year if Congress doesn't renew them. Meanwhile, Russ Feingold, who was the only senator out of our 100 senators to vote against the original Patriot Act, said that the Compromise's opponents have several different tactics they can use to stop the bill in the Senate. Says Feingold, I've let my colleagues know that I intend to take as many of those options as I can to try and get this bill redone. They said, I understand, but I don't know whether that means they're going to change the bill or whether they want to just go through this whole process. Meanwhile, in Austria, The BBC is reporting that what they call the revisionist historian, what the rest of us know as the Holocaust denier David Irving, has been arrested. An interior ministry spokesman in Austria said police in the province of Styria acted on a warrant that had been outstanding since 1989 to arrest Irving, who was on his way to give a lecture in the capital of Vienna. You may recall that Irving came into the spotlight in 2000 when he sued American academic Deborah Lipstadt for having described him as a Holocaust denier in her 1994 work Denying the Holocaust, the growing assault on truth and memory. Irving lost that case. In fact, the judge said that Irving was, quote, an active Holocaust denier, that he is an anti-Semite and racist, and that he associates with right-wing extremists who promote neo-nazism irving was arrested for violating an austrian law against holocaust denial barnes and noble has issued its third quarter statements after hearing from all the other biggies bertelsmann was way up borders was well slightly down and barnes and noble is slightly up According to another AP story, Barnes & Noble, Inc., the nation's leading bookseller, said Thursday it had a slim profit in the third quarter, down sharply from a year ago, but beating analysts' expectations, and it boosted its profit outlook for the full year. According to the AP, the New York-based retailer earned $327,000 in the third quarter, compared with $7.57 million last year. Uh, that was based on sales, however, of billion, which was actually up from sales of 1.04 billion same quarter last year. Said company CEO Steve Riggio, third quarter sales met expectations, benefiting from a strong hardcover release schedule in October. He looks for that trend to continue through the rest of the Christmas season in the fourth quarter. And finally, in New York literary circles, everybody has their panties in a wad over the departure from Riverhead Books of its founding editors, Cindy Spiegel and Julie Grau, who started the imprint 10 years ago. It's the classy literary imprint of Penguin Books, and it's famous for books such as Khaled Hosseini's The Kite Runner, James McBride's The Color of Water, and, um, uh, well, Sue Zorman's The Road to Wealth. Spiegel and Grau are going to be starting a new division at Doubleday Broadway, which is part of the Random House conglomerate. They'll be starting at the end of the month. According to a statement from Doubleday, the two will offer, quote, "...a focused mix of literary fiction and quality nonfiction titles." Meanwhile, back at Penguin, CEO Susan Peterson Kennedy said, don't worry about us, we will carry forward the momentum that Riverhead has consistently delivered time and again. The general view in New York City seems to be that this is either a good thing, nice thing to see a new house started from such a literary pair, and others are saying that Random House just eats everything, man. And that's the news for today, the 18th of November, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson.
1: It's November 18th, and on this day in literary history, Margaret Atwood, novelist, poet, and literary critic, was born in Ottawa in 1939. A wildly prolific writer with ten novels to her name, along with many volumes of poetry and criticism, Atwood is widely known for her novel of futuristic dystopia, The Handmaid's Tale, which was made into a movie and an opera, and for her Booker Prize-winning novel, The Blind Assassin. But Atwood is also a very successful poet, and she was a key figure in Toronto's New Voices group in the 1960s, along with Gwendolyn McEwen, Dennis Lee, and Michael Ondaatje. And she has also done extensive scholarly writing on Canadian literature, publishing, in fact, the very first book to focus solely on Canadian writing, the controversial Survival, a thematic guide to Canadian literature. And as a political activist and essayist, she often writes on feminist concerns. Known for her wicked sense of humor and caustic tongue, Atwood announced in November of 2004 that her company, You Know Touch It, Inc., would demonstrate to an invitation-only crowd a, quote, remote book signing device, which would allow an author to remotely sign a book as well as interact via audio and video, thereby inaugurating the completely automated author reading you know, Touch It! announced that the device will be available in 2006. As to the possible inspiration for developing the device, Atwood has been quoted as saying, wanting to meet an author because you like his work is like wanting to meet a duck because you like pate. I'm Valerie Marions, and that's this day in literary history. I know my chicken. You got to know
0: Hillel Itali reporting for the AP on the National Book Awards in event uh, event in New York City the other night. Um, Hillel, what was your general impression? Was the event a success?
2: I don't know. Um, I guess it depends what we mean by success. I mean, I guess um, publishers probably judge that in the coming days to see if the books that won sold a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Um I think for the organizers it, it was success uh everything went off well there were no you know gaffes or big mistakes or anything um there was it was also a pretty lively ceremony mm-hmm. um, it seemed that um the theme at least for all the special presenters uh, the, the, uh, of Lawrence Berlinghetti and Norman Mailer and Garrison Keller, the the host was sort of you know, the, the declining state of, of literacy,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um, whether or not you agree with that or not, it, it, it certainly makes for a, a very lively ceremony and you know, gives people things to talk about and, and to debate.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: were there any surprises?
2: Um, well, clearly the one, the, the, the fiction winner, was mm-hmm. a surprise, mm-hmm. although I should qualify this here. We always talk about books being a surprise, and my theory is is usually when we call something a surprise um, it's because the the journalists didn't expect it and um, <laughs> journalists tend to if you look over the years when we call something quote a favorite it's usually simply the books that the journalists have read Right. Um, so it was sort of easy to say E.L. Doctorow of course he must be the favorite because that's the book that most of us have heard of Right. Um, but you know we don't really know the judges um, and one thing that came out that um, uh, Paul Slovak of Viking, who is mm-hmm. William Volman's editor, mm-hmm. and he had said this to me, and he said this, I, I think he said this to other people, he thought Volman would win. I mean, and understandably, of course, he's, he's, he's got an interest in this, but mm-hmm. his theory was was because of the judges, um, that he looked at the judges. Uh, one of them, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Ricky D- Ducornay,
3: mm-hmm.
2: who is the kind of, more the kind of writer. Who might look at a William volman mm-hmm. And so he was saying, "Look, the judges this year seem to be the type who are going to go for something a little different." So, so I don't know.
0: Slovak said this to you before the uh, announcement.
2: What? Slovak said yes, this. Yes, he before said this the during the, uh, the 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 you know the the cocktail hour mm-hmm. before the ceremony. And you know, ov- you know all editors, of course, are, are likely to think they, that they have a chance, but. Um, he did have an interesting point. When we talk about, quote, favorites Mm -hmm. um, at the National Book Awards, we're sort of assuming a kind of institutional mentality, Mm -hmm. as if you can predict year after year what they'll go for. Mm -hmm. But um, the judges change every year. And um, unless we, you know, unless we, I'd say, as journalists are intimately acquainted with those judges, it's 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 hard for us to say, you know, it, to really say what was favorite. That that's I think more of a kind of uh, something that the journalists like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I guess by the, you know we can say William Bolman was a surprise. Uh, everyone seemed to expect Joan Didion to win, mm-hmm. um, and I think the other categories. I don't think there were any books that were so sort of prominent. Again, the kind of books that that journalists would single out that. Mm-hmm you know there were necessarily any 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 favorites for them
0: well i think perhaps in poetry ws merwin is always a favorite and
2: yeah and of, of course, like of course Dr. you have john character. ashbery up there too mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. so you know it's always going to be it, it, it's a safe pick you know if mm-hmm. you're going you know you pick somebody as mm-hmm. uh, as as prominent as as that
0: you mentioned the mood of some of the people on stage um, would you would you categorize it as, as gloom and doom? And, and there, the there's there's certainly a
2: kind of a, a, a knee jerk tendency mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. predict you know the downfall of literacy, especially mm-hmm. among the generation of people who are up there um, you know, Furling Getty and Mahler. Um, but then again they you know they've seen how things can change. I mean Mahler came of age when you know the, the thing to do was to write the great american novel right. and that that was the way you really became famous and sort of put your name out there and so he's lived long enough to know that you know that doesn't really happen anymore
3: mm-hmm.
2: so um he you know it's possible no no one can really say for sure you know whether where where the direction of literature is going but he certainly has some history there and I'm he I'm sure remembers very well what it meant to be a writer in his 20s and and what it means to be a writer now.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to get back to Mailer in just a minute because he merited a separate filing for you on the Associated Press Wires last night. But um, could you just for a minute tell MobyLib's listeners about what the scene is like there? Is this a very particularly glamorous event? It's Publishing's idea of
2: glamour. (laughs) Publishing's idea of glamour? I mean, people get dressed up Uh and, and, and... you know there, and there there's drinks and and, and and fancy food and all of that mm-hmm. um, it you know it's about as glamorous as publishing is is, is going to be mm-hmm. i mean um, and it, it's you know as an officially black uh, black tie mm-hmm. um, ceremony um, so you know there is sort of a feeling like this is sort of like a, a big night for publishing. You get a lot of people under the same roof and and there really is for all the sort of um, laments about the state of literature and for um you know the various arguments over who should have won there really is i think a general sense of you know hey we're all here because we love books mm-hmm. you know you're not here you know you're not in publishing for for the glamour of it anyway mm-hmm. you know so there really is that kind of mood that you know we, we do all love books mm-hmm. and um you know we don't just dress up for anything <laughs>
0: Well, um, let me move on to the Mailer business, um, because, I, as I mentioned, I noticed that you had filed uh, a separate story about Mailer, and in the lead, you're talking about his introduction. Um, he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award, a medal, and you talk about his introduction from Toni Morrison, and it sounds like she dissed him.
2: Well, it was done in a very, I, I would say, let's call it in a Mailer-esque Barrett, which is, um, you know, the greatness of Mailer is that he, he never insists that everything, you know, he, he, he doesn't claim everything is wonderful, including himself. You know, he insists on telling the whole story as best as you can. And I think Toni Morrison came at it with that um, approach. I, I think she, she very clearly acknowledged, you know, what a sort of a, a great presence and important figure he is in, in American Letters. But, you know, you can't, um, uh, she she doesn't want to turn him into a saint mm-hmm. either, mm-hmm. and that would be inappropriate. And um, so I think there was something almost, it, it, you know, it, 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 it was in the spirit of Mailer that she did that, mm-hmm. and it was in the context of a speech of acknowledging that, However, she feels about the way he, you know, he writes about women.
0: The quote is: um, "I have my own list of objections that I can per- peruse at right. my leisure, not least of which is an almost comic obtuseness regarding women."
2: And um, he certainly has heard that before, I'm not sure. necessarily at a time when he's receiving an award. Mm-hmm. Um, and did he I, seem surprised? He he laughed. Um, he understood the spirit of it. I. I I'm not sure if I want to say he expected it, but I don't think it shocked him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a way he sort of, I don't want to say he appreciated it, but again, maybe he took it in the kind of spirit that he would. He just—he knows he's hes a man who doesn't always please everybody. And um, I think he really, you know, again, he took it in that spirit. And, you um, quote him you as know,
0: responding uh, by saying, uh, I'm obtuse about women, but also wary of
2: them. Right, which... Um, <laughs> very again it's it's just the sort of thing he would say but it was you know it was done in a very kind of warm spirit um i don't think he's ever pretended he 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 has a very high opinion of himself but um (laughs) uh i don't think he's ever pretended he's perfect Mm -hmm. and i think that um it it was it 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 felt when you think about it it sort of felt right that there should be a little bit of you know little bit of tension or conflict there.
3: Yeah,
0: Lawrence Ferlinghetti was another one given. Um, did they did they call his award also a lifetime achievement? Uh, it award? was
2: the Literarian Prize, I believe, which uh-huh. is sort of more of kind of like contributions. Mm-hmm. Um, not, is that a you know, new prize? What
0: is that a new prize?
2: Uh, that is a new prize, mm-hmm. and it's more sort of kind of contributions to the community. And of course, he has a great history just with with City Lights and. Right. and publishing um, Allen Ginsberg and in general sort of being a, you know a force um, you know a force for, for, for ex, uh, freedom of expression right. uh, and also someone who as a poet has sort of emphasized you know being accessible and, and really sort of uh, responsive to to the mood mm-hmm. of, of the times
0: what was his acceptance speech like
2: um well as mailer joked uh when he he spoke before mailer and mailer kind of joked that you know i'm cursing for because he was saying what i wanted to say mm-hmm. uh again lamenting sort of the state of of literature and wondering where it's going and and you know um you know w- wondering if if Again, if if it's simply uh, declining. Mm -hmm. Um, This, again, was a theme through the night. Garrison Keller, you know, the host, was making jokes about it and and jokes about, you know, gee, I'm so glad I live at a time when people actually read paper books and, you know, wondering if authors would all be called content providers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's something that happens when a lot of book people get together. And maybe especially... um, from older writers who who do remember and who do know that you know they they've seen things change since mm-hmm. they, since they were growing up.
0: Keeler himself has come under mild fire lately. Um, an article about him in the New York Times that was uh, slightly critical and it was talking about another article in in Poetry magazine that was very critical. Did uh, did any of that come up last night?
2: You know, I don't recall that um, that coming up. Mm-hmm. I mean, he touched upon, you know, some sensitive things you know i think there was reference to the to the whole google controversy
3: mm-hmm.
2: and he took a few shots at the the quills awards which you know are these people's choice awards mm-hmm. which um which were held last month
3: mm-hmm.
2: um but I, know, I don't think that i don't recall the poetry um you know his the review those those competing reviews right. in poetry magazine
0: right so he, he didn't have a defensive moment about that what was the highlight of the evening for you
2: I don't know. Um, I mean, it's all sort of a highlight. Um, it's 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 sort of nice to be, you know, under one roof with 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 so many different kinds of people, mm-hmm. and um, to sort of have books be the focus of, of everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it really is a it, it really is a good night for um for books. I mean, and and. It, people talk about them and um, beyond sort of the kind of awards gossip the books also get talked about in a serious way mm-hmm. um, so I, you know it, the whole it, it, it's all something that it's um, it's all sort of a highlight I would guess.
0: Hillel thanks for coming on the show. Okay thank you. Hillel Itali covers the book business for the Associated Press. He spoke to us from his office in Midtown Manhattan. Well, as I originally learned on Moby Lives the blog, so much as mentioning the word "poetry" leads to a world of really angry emails. Moby Lives Radio is proving no exception to that rule, and after my Tuesday interview of Alan Cordell, the founder of Poetry.com, the website that purports to expose corruption in academic poetry contests, I got email. I heard from Mark White of New York City, for example, who writes, quote, You're an idiot. I read more of his letter, but that's all he wrote. However, I also heard from fans of poetry. For example, Carl Young, also of New York, wrote, Thanks for your interview of Alan Cordell. He's a real hero in some ways. It takes guts to go up against those academics. However, he does go over the top sometimes. Will you be telling that side of the story? Well, Carl, it's funny you asked. I also heard from one of the poets that Alan Cordell talked about in the interview, Michael White. White, in turn, alerted poet Janet Holmes that I had interviewed Cordell. Holmes is the poet who, after being written about by the then anonymous poetry.com, hired an attorney to track down the registration of the website, thereby exposing Cordell. Both White and Holmes wrote me extremely long letters I offered to read excerpts from each on Moby Lives, but both White and Holmes withdrew their letters when I would not meet their demands to read the letters in their entirety. Holmes told me it was an act of suppression on my part. Well, if you'd like to submit yourself to the Suppressive Tactics of Moby Lives Radio, you can by writing to Moby at MobyLives.com. I may not be able to read your letter in its entirety, as I've made clear, but I'll do my best to read as much of it as time permits, especially if you keep it under a million words. Meanwhile, there was one other development after that interview. As you may recall, Cordell focused on his fight with Amazon.com, which had taken down his list from the listomania section of poets. Within hours of our conversation, the list mysteriously reappeared. That's our show for Friday, the 18th of November, 2005. Thanks to Hillel Itali for coming on the program. And thanks, too, to Andrew Steinmetz, the engineer, and the editorial department at Melville House. That's Becky Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and publisher Valerie Marions. We had help this time from the art department as well. That was our book designer and art director, Dave Kanopka's band, Battles, playing on some of the incidental music. Come back on Monday when I'll be speaking to bookseller... Robert Gray, you may know him for his popular book blog, Fresh Eyes. He's also a book buyer at one of America's leading independent bookstores, The North Shire in Manchester, Vermont. I'm going to be talking to Robert Gray about remainders, buying them and selling them. You don't want to miss that. Meanwhile, if you've been wondering about that clanking in the background throughout the show, what can I tell you? It's cold in Hoboken. The heat's coming on. That's Pirate Radio, ladies and germs. And that's Moby Liz for today. Don't forget this weekend, that whale is out there, man. There's a gal at the
3: local beanery. She's a pretty hunk of scenery. She can make a chocolate soda go You ought to go around and dig it. When she's working at the spigot, you can hear her calling orders like this. Give me a ham white down and a burger round. Cider slaw and a seven layer. OJ up two in a cup and a boogie woogie blue plate. Give me a crippled beef on a load of hay. Combo rye and a bottle of egg. Coming through with a slab of moo and a boogie woogie blue plate. Draw one, draw two. Get that coffee perkin'. Draw three. Draw four, whole that marrow on the chopped egg, working one of tuna week with a side of fries, 86 on the cherry pies, side of greens on the franks and beans, and a boogie-woogie blue plate. side of fries 86 on the cherry pies side of greens on the franks and beans and a boogie woogie blue plate